Well, Tasquin Mission Church has always held a very soft spot in my heart, ever since the time my dad was a pastor here. But I also started my education here in Wetaskiwin. A number of years ago, when we were going through some of our stuff, I came across something I did in grade one here. It was a picture of an apple with a stem and a few leaves on it. And as I looked at it, I remembered that day here at Wetaskiwin School when the teacher told us to color it. And I took some pencil crayons and I went this way and this way and this way and this way and I filled it all in. Then I looked at her comments years later at the bottom of this paper and it said, why don't you try coloring the same way? That is about the only thing I remember from my grade one experience here at Wetaskiwin, that I didn't learn to color right. Anyway, it is a privilege, privilege to be here with you today. My wife and I We have started a Bible school in the Philippines for tribal people, and it has been going for quite a number of years now. And God has seen blessed to provide pastors coming out of the school and church workers, and now cross-cultural church planters going to other tribes. So we're very blessed to share this with you. My mandate this morning is to not only teach you something from God's Word, but also to tell you something about our work and the ministry. And I have found over the years that it's easy to do one or the other, but to combine them into one is very difficult. So I trust that I have succeeded in my mandate for today. There's a very familiar verse that many of us probably memorized when we were children, and Pastor Wayne read it for us this morning in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. But I want to zero in on this verse, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. That is the phrase I want to zero in on today. We all know that the gospel is the power of God for us spiritually because we have been saved. I remember one of our tribal people, one of the first men ever saved in the tribe, a man by the name of Elot. His name means lightning in his language. He helped with the translation of the New Testament and became one of our first believers. But then he realized that other people needed to know about this gospel. So without any shoes or slippers, bare feet, with bleeding feet, he hiked up and down the mountains sharing the good news with others. And other people came to know Christ. And so it is true, the gospel has power to change lives spiritually. We also know, secondly, that the gospel has the power to change lives morally. Another man that was involved in the translation of the New Testament was a pagan priest. He was still a practicing pagan priest when he was helping translate the New Testament. And one day he came to the translator and he said, You know, there's something wrong with me. 
There's something wrong with me. He says, I go home at night from helping you translate the New Testament, and I have supper with my family, and then I go to the girls' huts and try and sleep around with them, and I do this every night. But he said, something funny is happening to me. I feel that I don't want to sleep around with the girls anymore. And the translator looked at him and said, you know the reason? It's because the word of God is in your mind all day long as you're helping to translate the New Testament. And it is changing you morally. You don't want to do the things that you used to do. He wasn't yet a believer when that happened. So the word of God and the gospel has the power to change lives morally. But thirdly, the word of God... And the gospel has the power to change lives societally. Society can be uplifted because of the preaching of the word of God. We happen to work in a tribe where, in the early days, the men wore loincloths. The women, once they got married, they could be bare-breasted. So it would be easy for them to breastfeed their children. And many times they never put on blouses until the day they died. We never, ever preached against the way they dressed. But as the gospel was preached and as they got the New Testament and started reading it for themselves, their society changed. They decided that they wanted to wear clothes. And so, even even today... Things have changed drastically from when we first were there. Nowadays, it's hard to find someone wearing a loincloth. Whereas before, it was so common. But there's a fourth way that the gospel and the word of God changes people. And that is what I want to zero in on today. The gospel and the word of God has the power to change lives economically. You probably have never heard a sermon on this. And you might think that you're going to be in an economics class for a while. Or even a church history class. But someone who is a bum and doesn't work, who receives the gospel, who receives Christ, all of a sudden, because of the word of God, wants to work. And his economics is raised. That is just a simple illustration of what I'm talking about. I want to tell you a long story and then come back to our text and then talk about this. One day, I was sitting in my office in the tribe at our Bible school, and there was a knock on my door. I said, come in. And here was one of my teachers, tribal man, who's one of our Bible school teachers, but he also held another position. He was our church leader in our local church church chairman. And he came to me and I said, yeah, what can I do for you? And he said, Mario, who happens to be another one of our Bible school teachers, he said, he, as you know, he's teaching Sunday school. And the theme for this quarter is stewardship. But he doesn't want to teach next Sunday. So I want you to teach it for him. And my mind went back to several Sundays back when I had attended church Oftentimes I was out. And the aspect of stewardship that we talked about the Sunday that I was there was stewardship of creation. 
It was one of the most entertaining Sunday school classes I have ever attended in my life. They started out talking about if we are stewards of God's creation, should we poison the rats who are eating our rice crops? And so the buzz went all over the, the 30 or 40 people that were there in Sunday school. Should we poison rats? Because God created rats. And after a while, the consensus was, yes, we have the right to destroy God's creation, even though he created rats, because they're going to destroy our crops. Well, then the conversation went, what about snakes? They have venom in their mouths. And should we kill snakes or should we just let them go just because God has created them? And after a while, they decided that, yes, they could also kill snakes because if they don't kill the snakes first, maybe the snake might kill them first. So better the snake than them. And then it got gradually worse. And as I, and I'll tell you about it in a second, but as I'm listening to this, my mind drifted back to Canada. And I thought to myself, if I were sitting in a Canadian Sunday school class and the topic was stewardship of creation, I doubt if anyone would be talking about whether it's right or wrong to kill a rat or to kill snakes. But we're dealing with tribal people, and this is a very earthy subject and real to them, as I shall now explain, because then the Sunday school lesson went on to, should we butcher a pig, or if we're rich, a water buffalo at a wedding feast so we can feed all the people who come. Because a pig or a water buffalo is not like a snake that's going to hurt you. What has that animal done that's wrong? Why should that animal give up its life just so that you can have a marriage feast? And the conversation, oh, it was... It was Incredible. Everyone wanted to talk and give their opinion on this subject. And then one bright person had a brilliant idea. He said, I think we do have the right to butcher a pig or a water buffalo at a wedding feast. Because look at those animals. They don't go to the bathroom like we do. They just go anywhere. So they are sinning. And I thought to myself, oh my word, I can't believe what I'm hearing. If I was in Canada, no one would have the nerve to say this in Sunday school. And I just said it from the pulpit. So, Junie says to me, I want you to teach in Sunday school next Sunday because Mario won't. And I said to him, what aspect of stewardship is he supposed to speak on next Sunday that he won't talk on it? And he said, stewardship of time and work. And I laughed. Stewardship of time and work. And I said, oh, just tell Mario this. We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have seven days in a week. So what you do is if you have a job, you just start in the morning and you keep going until the end of the day and hopefully you're done. And if you're not, well, you get up the next day and you just keep going until you're done. And that's what we do. You tell that to Mario so he can teach his Sunday school class next Sunday. And Junie said, no. And I'm going to translate almost a direct quote as to what he said next, because he said it, not me. 
he said, but you know us Filipinos, we like to just stand around and do nothing. We don't actually like to work. We don't know how to use our time very well and get our work done. But it's not that way with you, Trevor. So it's better if you help Mario out by teaching this subject for him. Now, we have Filipinos in this church. We just heard what a fantastic job they did last night. And I was there, of course, and it was wonderful. Over the week and a half that we've now been in Canada, having flown in a week ago Wednesday, I've heard time and time again how wonderful Filipino workers are in this country. In fact, two people said to me, they're the best. So what Junie said here, you can't, you can't say that that applies to everyone. But that's what he said about him and his tribal people. We don't like to work. We like to sit around or stand around and do nothing. And I must say that Junie and Mario and my other staff, they are very hardworking. Like, I wouldn't agree that this is the way they are, but that's what he said about himself. But I've noticed that when I read the editorials in the newspaper, that oftentimes this is a theme in the Philippine Star or the Manila Bulletin or some other newspaper. In the editorial section, they often talk about this. So I burst into laughter, and I said to Junie, if it is true what you say... Like, I'm not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole, whether it's true or not. But if it is true what you say, it is not your fault that you and your people are the way they are. And then I launched into a church history lesson. I said, back in the days before Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation in 1517, all of Western Europe was basically Catholic, under the feudal system. And... The the attitude towards work was the same everywhere. You only work because you have to work. You don't work because you enjoy work. Work is basically a curse. And that was the Catholic theology that permeated society back in those days. And you can see how it evolved. Like a hunter, for example, would go out with his bow and arrow and take a deer or something Then he would bring it home. Well, he wouldn't have to go out the next day and shoot another deer because they had plenty of meat. So he might as well just stay there at home with his family and friends, and they would sit around and do nothing, or almost nothing, until the meat got used up. And when the meat was used up, then the hunters would go out again, and the men would work, quote-unquote, work. And then they would bring something back and they would relax and have a good time until that was used up. One of the byproducts of the Protestant Reformation is that things changed drastically with this attitude. When God enabled Martin Luther to see that it is not by works, but it is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified... Faith and faith alone. And this started the Protestant Reformation in 1517. There was a huge repercussion all over Europe. It spread to Switzerland. Then it spread to France and the Netherlands. Then on up to Scotland and England and Scandinavia. 
And basically, Martin Luther and his colleague, John Calvin, started translating the Bible into the local languages. Martin Luther did it into German. John Calvin did it into French. Once those New Testaments and Bibles were published, pastors started preaching from the Bible. They weren't preaching from what the priest had told them the Bible said. They now were digging into the Word of God for themselves. And for the first time in hundreds of years, were finding out what the Scripture said. They incorporated a biblical worldview into their mindset. And they overthrew the Catholic worldview on work. That started what has been known as the Protestant work ethic. Came out of Northern Europe. Because basically, Northern Europe went Protestant. Southern Europe stayed status quo. Germany under Martin Luther was first. Switzerland under Zwingli went second. France under Calvin and others went third. But of course, France is not a Protestant nation today. But at one time, they were up to 50% Protestant with the Huguenots. What happened? The Catholics were furious about what was happening, so they started the Inquisition, torturing Protestants to make them recant and come back to the fold. Many Protestants fled to Switzerland and other countries, even coming to this country, and France basically emptied itself for practical purposes, all practical purposes, of the Protestants and remained Catholic. The Netherlands went Protestant. Scotland went Protestant under John Knox. England is a different ball of wax because King Edward VIII wanted to go Protestant for marriage reasons so he could divorce his wife. So that wasn't really a religious reformation. It was more a political. But then Scandinavia, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Norway, they all went Protestant. So basically, Northern Europe went Protestant. France, Italy, Portugal, Spain, Ireland remained the status quo Catholic. Which countries took off economically? If you know your history, you will know that it was the northern European countries that took off and were economic powerhouses, whereas the southern European countries, who were basically Catholic, kept on with the status quo. Now, you might be getting a little bit tired of my church history lesson that I was giving to Junie because I said to Junie, you tell this to Mario, and this is what he can preach next Sunday in Sunday school. But Junie said no. So I kept on, and I gave him part two of my church history lesson. I said, it's interesting to note, Junie, that the northern nations in Europe became colonizers, as well as some of the southern nations. And it's interesting to look at what kind of colony those European nations planted and colonized. For example, England was a huge colonizer, and Canada is one of the byproducts. The United States, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, and Singapore, Malaysia. Lots of countries attributed to England. Where did France go? France went to Quebec. 
France went to Louisiana in the United States. The Netherlands went to Indonesia. And all over Spain, they went to South America. But let me go zero in on Spain because it has something to do with the Philippines. Ferdinand Magellan, in 1521, set out to find the Spice Islands. And he and his party ended up being the first to circumnavigate the world. But he, he came to the Philippines in April of 1521. Almost within hours of when Martin Luther, in Germany, was standing before Emperor Charles V at Worms. And that very famous statement that you all have heard of, Martin Luther said, after he was told to recant the books that he had written about the Protestant Reformation and that justification is by faith, not by works. Here is what Martin Luther was saying when Magellan was, was planting his flag in the Philippines for Spain. He said, if the emperor wants a simple answer, I can give it to him. It is impossible for me to recant unless I am proved to be wrong by the testimony of Scripture. My conscience is bound to the word of God. It is neither safe nor honest to act against one's conscience. Here I stand. God help me. I cannot do otherwise. The point I wanted Junie to get was that the Protestant colonizers took their Protestant work ethic to many of their colonies. And that is why Canada has a Protestant work ethic. The United States has a Protestant work ethic. And the other, many of the other colonizing, uh, colonized countries have a Protestant work ethic. Now, it was up to the, the colony to decide whether or not they wanted to keep the Protestant worldview. Some colonies didn't take it, like Nigeria. They had a Muslim worldview. Nigeria did not imbibe deeply of the Protestant work ethic, even though the British colonized it. But nearby, Ghana did. And today, Ghana is a powerhouse country of the world. Why? Or at least for Africa. Why? Because, in my opinion... It imbibed deeply of the Protestant work ethic of its colonizers. I then said to Juni, why do you think that Japan, South Korea, China, and Hong Kong, non-Protestant countries in Asia, are powerhouse countries? And Juni said, well, I don't know. So I told him. I said, they're not Protestant countries, but they all go back to Confucius. Confucius was a man who lived about 500 BC. And although not a Christian or a Protestant, he believed basically what the Bible teaches about work. And he taught it to his people. And because of that, God has honored Japan, South Korea, China, and Hong Kong, and some of these other Chinese places, and uh, Japanese and uh, Korean places, because they have what we have, a Protestant work ethic, although they don't call it that. Then I said to Junie, which countries here in Asia are the countries that put their hand out every year and ask for handouts from the richer nations of the world? And immediately he shot back, the Philippines is one. And I said, yes, and Indonesia is another. I said, but do you know what, Junie? It's not your fault. 
for what happened. And he was surprised. I said, because Spain conquered this place in 1521. And for 333 years, the Philippines was under the thumb of Spain. The Roman Catholic priests came not out of Spain, but out of Mexico, over to the Philippines. And they were like this, in training the Filipinos in the, in the Catholic worldview, especially on work. They taught them that for religion, and that's why the, the Philippines basically became a Catholic country. But they also brought their work ethic. And what is that work ethic? Work is basically a curse. You only work unless you have to work. So I said to Junie, it's not your fault that you are the way you are, if indeed it is true what you say, that you don't like to work. It's the fault of the colonizing country who brought their work ethic here. I said, you go tell that to, to Mario and have him teach that. He said, no, we want you to do it. So I looked at my calendar I was somewhere else the next Sunday. But the following Sunday I was free, so he said, you teach it the following Sunday. We'll get Judy to speak on, or speak, get Mario to speak on some other aspect of stewardship, probably money, next Sunday, and you take it. So I had to preach on this. And I always said to them, Juni said, because I couldn't say it for myself. I said, Junie said, and I'm quoting Junie, your church leader, that Filipinos don't like to work. And here is the reason why, if it is true. <laughs> if it is true. So that's what I taught. But then it hit me like a ton of bricks. The power of the gospel. The gospel is powerful for salvation, yes. The gospel is powerful to change morals, even someone who is still a pagan priest and isn't yet a believer, but he doesn't want to sleep around. The gospel has the power to raise society. And everywhere the gospel is preached, when people accept it as a byproduct, the level of society is raised. And the gospel has an economic effect as well. Let me show you this big book that I have here. This is our new Ifugao Bible that the pastor referred to earlier. A missionary from Wainwright, Alberta, went out to learn the language and translate the New Testament. It took him 23 years. So this part took him 23 years. Then we came along, and in 1991, I and a number of others on my team, we did the Old Testament three-quarters part. That took us 19 years to do. And then we revised the New Testament because the language had gone, some of the words had gone archaic, and so we upgraded the language in the New Testament. This is the 458th whole Bible that has been produced in the world. It's also a commentary because if you were to look in the bottom of these pages, what I have in green... These are footnotes that comment on the text so that the tribal people will have some idea of what's, what's being talked about because they're not Jews. They don't understand Jewish culture. If I wrote a commentary for them, it would be very hard to find funding to print a commentary. But if you put it at the bottom, 
Like there's over 6,200 footnotes in here. If you put it at the bottom, it's very easy to find funding to print a Bible because people want to be a part of that. Last year, we had the New Testament put on digital format. There's an organization called Faith Comes by Hearing, and this is their work. They put the Bible in digital format, and then they put a chip in a player so that the people who play it can't play anything else, and then they can listen because so many of our people are still illiterate, and they can't read this even though we've produced it for them. And it's got all the sound effects like Jesus uh, on the Sea of Galilee, there's waves, sound of waves. So it's wonderful to listen to. The power of the gospel. What does the Bible teach about the Protestant work ethic? Very, very quickly as I wrap up now, here's my sermon. First of all, the Protestant work ethic says that work is honorable. Honorable. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord took Adam and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. So God made Adam work before sin even entered into the world. And that's why we as Protestants say, work is not a curse. It is not a curse. It is honorable. I remember one of my first jobs out of, when I, was, I finished my first year of college. I went to Calgary, worked for a place called Nellwood Manufacturing. And because I was the flunky, they put me in the glue pits to clean out the glue pits. Nobody wanted that job. And so there I was, cleaning out glue. They made Quonset houses. And so for the laminated beams, all the glue that leaked out, that's where it went, in the glue pit. If you believe in what the Bible says, that work is honorable, I wouldn't have to hang my head in shame if you asked me, what kind of a job are you doing? I could say, oh, I'm so embarrassed to tell you that I clean glue pits. No, it doesn't matter what kind of a job we have, being a septic tank cleaner or a janitor up to the highest, the prime minister job, it doesn't matter what, what we do as long as it is kosher and not immoral or illegal. It's honorable. That is what the Bible teaches. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that work is cyclical. We have seven days divided into six and one, the one day being a day of rest. Some people in the world have experimented with changing that so that it's not a seven-day cycle. Well, they've done it to their, their uh, disappointment because oftentimes they get sick if they don't take a proper day of rest. Thirdly, the Bible says that work is mandatory. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And so this is addressed at the lazy bums at Thessalonica who were mooching off other people. They had the ability to work. It's not that they were like little kids who can't work or elderly who can't work, but these are people who could work, but they weren't working. The Protestant work ethic says that work is honorable and it is mandatory for those who can do it. Fourthly, the Bible teaches us that, uh, teaches us that work is beneficial. There are rewards for us if we work. There's physical rewards, bodily exercise, profit is little, but it profit is something. There's psychological benefits. If you don't have a job for two or three years, it does something for your psyche. Work provides something for you. It has mental benefits. I audit our, our Bible school books every month. Sometimes we are out once in Tabo. 
It would be so easy just to write adjustment, one centavo, and balance the books like that. But no, we don't do that. We spend hours looking for where is our error, even if it's just one measly centavo. A Filipino friend of mine said this, financial integrity isn't emphasized in Roman Catholic societies. And I think it's right. Financial integrity isn't emphasized in Roman Catholic societies. And so that is where corruption comes in, because you can fudge here and you can fudge there. But when you look and you have found that one centavo that is missing on your books, oh, it gives you such a good feeling. The books are balanced and has been done right. But there's a problem with work. Three problems, in fact. Underwork. Underwork. Not working enough when there is work to be done. A second problem is overwork. When people make work their God. In the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and all who followed him did not make work their God. God was the God. But we have changed it because the devil is corrupting our worldview. And so many people are workaholics because work now is their God. And another problem is stealing other people's work, plagiarism today. I teach overseas, and for the first time, I had my students upload their term papers onto turniton.com, which is a site which looks for plagiarism. Hmm. Sixth, work is enjoyable. When I worked at Nellwood Manufacturing in Calgary, work was not enjoyable. I hated that job, cleaning glue. But now that I found a job that I really, really like, being a missionary, I can agree with Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2.10 when he wrote, My heart took delight in all my work. Like, this was hard work. I lost, what, 40 pounds trying to get this Bible done, and the last time you saw me, I was so skinny and sick, it was because of all the stress getting this done. Now look at me. Now that it's done, you could say, praise God. Work has been so enjoyable and so rewarding. And lastly, work is triadic. John Wesley was the one who said, work as hard as you can, save as much as you can, Give as much as you can. There's a triad there. Work as hard as you can. Yes, the Bible teaches that. Secondly, save as much as you can. Why? Because we believe that there's a hereafter. It's the theology of the hereafter. We don't live in the here and now. So we save for a rainy day, just like Joseph saved for seven years of famine. We're putting our faith in the future. And then give as much as you can. John Wesley, someone calculated that he probably gave a total of $150,000, equivalent in our money today. And he was living in the 1700s. He worked so that he could save, so he had something to give. That's part of the Protestant work ethic. Most of us have grown up in a culture where the Protestant work ethic has been our ethic. We might not have grown up in a Christian home, 
But at least here in society, that is the norm here in Canada. Some of you might have grown up in a country where the Protestant work ethic wasn't the norm. And God has brought you into this culture where it is the norm. And praise God for that. But the main thing that I want us to get a hold of as I close now is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The power of God unto salvation. What kind of power are we talking about? The word of God and the gospel has the power to change people spiritually. Yes, and that is why we go and we preach the gospel. It has the power to change people's morals. That's not the reason why we go, but it's a wonderful byproduct. It has the power to change society and lift it up. Women who are downtrodden all of a sudden because of the word of God are treated with respect. That's not why we go and preach the word of God, but it's a wonderful byproduct. And then it's come to me recently. Economics. What, what is the hope for countries who are always looking for handouts and not being countries who are giving, like Canada? The solution is preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And as more people get saved, more people imbibe of what the Bible really and truly says about work, a byproduct is not only that they are saved, but all of society is risen. I've seen it before my own eyes. I trust that this church history lesson, economics lesson today from the Bible, has been beneficial to all of us. Today is Father's Day. I know all fathers almost are workaholics, but not quite as mothers. They're 24 hours a day, fathers only 12 But whatever, may we do everything in our God-given ability to honor work and preach the gospel, and God will bless it. Thank you.